everybody likes to talk about postmodernism. But what is postmodernism? And how do we know when somebody is talking about postmodernism, they know what they're talking about? We discuss this with special guest Professor Alyssa Wilkinson on this episode of The Overthinkers. Hello, thinking people's thinking people. Welcome to The Overthinkers. I am your host, Joseph Holmes, filmmaker, film critic, relapsed root beer addict. And with me, as always, is my troublesomely talented co-host, Nathan Clarkson, actor, author, filmmaker, and I have no extras to add today. <laughs> I am just out of any special skills or interesting things about myself. So that is it. I'm just an actor, author, and filmmaker. And I okay. have to do. It'll have to do. Okay, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll try to do with that. Uh, today, we have a very special guest. She is a film critic and culture reporter for Vox Magazine, associate professor of English and the Humanities at my alma mater, the King's College, and a former professor of mine. I took classes with her where she's taught criticism, cinema studies, and cultural theory since 2009. She is the co-author of the book, How to Survive the Apocalypse, and is a member of the New York Times Film Critics Circle and the National Society of Film Critics. She is also the co-host of the podcast, Young Adult Movie Ministry. She is the astounding, awesome, and audacious Alyssa Wilkinson. <laughs> Professor Wilkinson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. That's a lot of adjectives. <laughs> we really like alliterations here. It's a thing. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> a little bit of one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you for thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Of course. So today we are talking about postmodernism. Whenever I hear someone today talk about postmodernism, typically it's a Christian or a conservative criticizing some people or institution in the culture, whether it's academia or the media or just person in general, who is encouraging the idea that all values and truth claims are subjective or an individual's desires or experiences are subjective or just in general moral relativism. However, while that may be a part of postmodernism, that isn't all of what postmodernism is. And if we're going to talk about postmodernism, we really need to understand what we're talking about. Professor Wilkinson, you taught a class at the King's College on the postmodern world. So what is the postmodern world and what is postmodernism? How would you explain it to your average person so that they could discern whether or not somebody who's using the term is using the term correctly? That is such a good question. Um, mostly because I don't think many people know what they mean. Um, and there's a lot of confusion. Um, yeah. For very good reason. So I think the best way to look at this is to break it down um, into three related terms. Um, and I do this on the first day of class. So the first thing that uh, we talk about is the postmodern world, um, mm -hmm. which is the name of the course. And the idea of that is that we live in a world that has been shaped by um, both the conditions of postmodernity and the ideas of postmodernists. Hmm. So those are two different things. Ah. Yeah, so if we start with thinking about postmodernists, what we mean there are, it basically refers to various um, very loosely related schools of thought and inquiry and philosophy and um, critical theory and things like that that pop up. Um, basically in the wake of World War II, there's, it, it, you know, those sure. lines are a little fuzzy, but for the most part, people would peg it to kind of post-war and the 60s um, in the U.S. and in France. And these are guys like, you know, that you've heard of, Derrida, right. Foucault, 
leotard. Um, there's also the guys who kind of. <laughs> they're, they're... I have I have uh, very strong feelings about Rothko, and I've had very strong conversations <laughs> about him. So that name does a little bit too much. <laughs> yeah, and I mean these guys were you know they were philosophers for the most part, or theorists maybe sometimes is a little better. Um, they're growing out of all these different schools of philosophy. You know, I'm not a philosopher myself, so sure. um, a lot of what I know is just reading them and knowing how they fit together. So, you know, is existentialism postmodern? Well, it depends on who you talk to, right? I but know, they're, yeah. <laughs> they're basically coming up with sets of theories that really are growing out of, um, well, it's called the linguistic turn in philosophy, but basically it's a way of thinking about everything as language and through the filter of language and how language shapes reality. And, sure. um, you know, as as you probably know, at least in the course, we um, we start with just talking about pre, you know, pre postmoderns, I guess, um, who sort of looked at language one way and thought, huh, you know how language actually functions? This is really interesting. It tells us some things about reality. Right. Um, you know, that languages don't all have like the same number of words to describe different things. Um, and so much of that comes from what a culture needs. So anyhow, you can get all the way from there to this like serious doubting of the nature of reality, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> so that's postmodernism. And um, at the same time, and I think this is almost more important, um, there's this whole set of factors that have risen up that um, affect our lives, right? So there's things like, um, you know, technology obviously is really important here. And we have technologies right now in human history, or, you know, they've never existed in human right. history before now, right? So it would be, it would be, it's hard to make generalizations about the past um, and how people acted in the past when, you know, they didn't have Twitter. Like Twitter alone mm. is a factor that really shapes our reality. And there's other things too, like uh, globalization. Yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, the ability to just like travel quickly, normally, right? Yeah. Um, the fact yeah. you can get on a plane and be literally all the way around the world pretty rapidly. That's not, that's not something that humans yeah, have ever. Normal. People didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> yeah. so it really is a kind of a break with the past in many ways. And it's not that it all happened at once, but it did kind of accelerate in the 20th century. Um, and so those are all part uh, parts of the postmodern condition, and those pop up in and this is the third word this this kind of era we call postmodernity, um, and that's just like a historical period, just like modernity is a historical period. Sure. And so one thing I always try to emphasize is that you don't have to be a postmodernist if you don't want to, but you are a postmodern, and you don't get to escape that. Like right. if you're living right now, you're a postmodern. Um, and there are certain factors you have to live in, and there are certain things that shape your reality that are different from any other time in history. And that's, you know, those are all pieces that are kind of connected to one another, but they don't necessarily cause one another. And just because you accept certain things about reality doesn't mean that you are suggesting that like truth doesn't exist. But there's also very few postmodernists who would just flat out say truth is a thing that doesn't exist. So that's kind of a, a roundabout way to say, sure. you know, I think it's always helpful to say like, you are a postmodern because you live now. You had no choice in the matter. Gosh, you don't, yeah, but you don't <laughs> have to be a postmodernist. Um, I'm interested because um, you, 
you know, I've heard the term postmodern for so many years, having grown up in the circles that talk about these kinds of things and usually is used as a, as Joseph referred to, kind of a curse word. Yeah. You know, you get out of a movie and how's the movie as ah, postmodern, you know, it was, <laughs> you, you can skip it is the, is a sentiment behind it's postmodern or it's not good or mm-hmm. even, you know, it, it's somewhat heretical to our sense of truth or that, that kind of thing. I'm interested, uh, kind of a two-part question. One, what are some of the the aspects of this generation living in this postmodern world? What are some of the traits, the ideas, or even um, the feelings, the emotions that, uh, that this generation living in a postmodern world uh, has in common that, that they find are regular um, feelings, emotions, and aspects in this generation from your point of view? And number two, do you think post-modernity has brought any any pluses to the world? Has it brought good things? And I, and I specifically ask that because it's been so often used as a negative thing, especially in cultures of faith right. um, and conservatism. It's something, oh, it's postmodern, it's bad. Are, right. there, are there good things that have arisen out of this postmodern age? And what are the attributes of postmodernity on this generation that we yeah. might share? Well, that's great. Um, so first of all, we should say that the first postmoderns were baby boomers. So basically mm-hmm. everyone who's alive now has grown up in, you know, a thoroughly postmodern world. And there are some attributes that they share, that we share, that Gen Z shares with baby boomers, right? Um, and one of those is most postmoderns have a kind of a baseline um, like a skepticism about authority and about mm-hmm. narratives that authorities try to feed us. So if you think of the 60s, you know, which is when the baby boomers were were kids or teenagers, um, <clears throat> they were they were very skeptical of authorities. They were <laughs> becoming hippies. They were, you know, this isn't, you know, we can't really make, <clears throat> sorry, we can't really make blanket statements to say everyone was like that, but it certainly was more pervasive than but you I might have found. Everyone is like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I'm, and, you know, I, so to your other questions, I, I actually see that as mostly a good thing. Um, you know, it, it, obviously authority is something that's necessary and needed and we're never going to live in a world where there aren't authorities but it's also pretty dangerous I think when people just swallow what authorities say as Mm -hmm. if it's normal all the time right and so you know one way I see this as being really positive is um, I thought about this a lot during when the kind of Me Too movement just started about how many people you know, they like really had their lives destroyed because the idea was, well, the powerful guy said something, so we kind of have to go along with it. So, right. and I, I have, I've seen that firsthand in Hollywood as an actor. Mm-hmm. That is something that has existed for many, many years. And I think it's just kind of being exposed now. And it sounds like it might be being exposed because of postmodernity. Yes. Well, and, you know, there's maybe we can say that postmodernity, having been around you know, for, we're coming up on how long after World War II, right? We're like hitting decades and decades and decades. It's become sort of the default idea that we have about the world. Um, That's definitely not to say there aren't people who are, who want to find an authority to follow and just follow them blindly. You know, that's like a human, a human Uh, need. Um, Yeah. Another thing that um, you see in post-modernity, Uh, And certainly you see this um, in the present is a push for, and this is again related to art, but a push for thinking about history as having been written by the winners and wondering who 
got left off the page sure. and trying to figure out how to welcome their stories back into history. So, you know, there, it, it, it is plainly true and not really debatable that a lot of people never got to tell their stories or their stories were suppressed because they were politically inconvenient right. or the powerful or whatever, right? All those things that always happen in history. Right. And so we start to see this emphasis on um, marginalized people groups or on, you know, people who, you know, wouldn't have gotten to tell their story because it required a certain amount of, you know, just money to get into the, into right. the Hollywood business or something like that, right? So again, I, I see that as super positive, um, not just because of the obvious, but also because it makes for much richer art, I think, in the yeah. end. It's uncomfortable, I think, a lot of the times, um, because there's certainly going to be people who feel like they're being um, opposed in some way by it. But it, I think, you know, at least from a Christian perspective, it's very easy for me to see why all voices are good and necessary in a culture and not just a few of them. Um, not just the powerful. Yeah. Right. And it, because base, the basic baseline way I think about this is that if we're um, created in the image of God, if we're all created in the image of God, then when we all get to speak, we get a fuller picture of of God. Mm -hmm. So, so that's all really cool to me. Um, you know, and I think one way that we see today, maybe that's, that's less great about the postmodern condition really is our just intense distractedness. Um, and also something called, um, <clears throat> uh, what is it called? <laughs> it's summer guys. Um, <laughs> no something, words. Right. Well, it's, it's this idea that everything feels very intense. I'm losing the, the, um, no worries. You'll you'll remember it in like twenty minutes when we're talking about something else, and then I you have just that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's depthless intensities, which is the idea that everything comes at us basically through a screen, and yeah. we kind of don't know the context for things that are happening, and yeah, so everything that happens seems very very shocking and new to us. And it's yeah. been funny. I'm I'm and doing constant some as well. I'd say that's right. Yeah. yeah, and I can't remember when something happened or like when you know like it, it feels like it's just constant headlines and so we kind yeah. of lose context of and we also lose our connection to the past i i've been reading um jim hoberman um who's you know a really important film critic um his book on the 60s which is basically a cultural history of the 60s and also um about the movies of the 60s and it was fascinating i mean it's been fascinating to me because i'm throwing a little post-it flag on every page where he quotes someone who says something that sounds absolutely like you could have taken it out of yesterday's headlines mm, yeah um, and you know and like the 60s weren't the first time anyone felt that you know that, that yeah, way no, either yeah. so so i think like we start to forget that in the words of i believe Battlestar Galactica, all, fit, all this has happened before and all this will happen again. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and that's not good for anybody. It's especially not good for no. like our mental health. So, so, so yeah. So, so, so what couple things sort of kind of I'm getting. Yeah. One is, so yeah, there's, a, there's the postmodern world and there's postmodernism. And one mm -hmm. is the world we live in and that's a historical thing. And one is the philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, and postmodernism has sort of, is sort of partly defined by a skepticism of reality or a skepticism of our access to reality. You would mm -hmm. say that's fairly accurate? Yes. And okay. our previously well. held positions of truth and boundaries. Right, like exactly. It it's like, like, yeah, how can we know? Are we sure? That kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Okay. And then uh, post-modernity uh, post is sort of defined by a 
skepticism of authority. So which is sort of part of its link to postmodernism. It's like, well, mm -hmm. how do we know we can trust that authority or something like that? And also, which leads to partly also skepticism of, well, how do we know we can trust the history? Because it was written by the winners or people in power. So that's part of that. Um, which also leads partly to the um, the constant information, which also is partly due to technology, as you said, but like mm -hmm. there's so many voices going on and so many things, people telling things. How do we know, you know, who to listen to? How do we know who to follow? And how do we know, you know, what data is important or not? Because we don't mm -hmm. have a filtering system for which data is important. You would say that those are, that's a correct way to describe some of what you're talking about? Yeah, it, it's very correct. And I think it leads to um, the thing that sometimes gets called tribalism um yeah. you know and i my so my book on the apocalypse is actually about charles taylor uh the philosopher right yeah. <laughs> it's yep. just we stuck the zombies in there so people <laughs> would read it and um you know and one thing he talks about he talks a lot about just sort of the age we're in and he's he's really great to read because he's not saying it's worse or better right. it's just different um and it you know, behooves us to understand the world that we're living in. Right. But yeah, the, you know, this sort of idea that, okay, well, if we can't, so I, I would describe the way most postmodernists really think, even if yeah. it's not how they talk about it to be that they think truth is out there. Like there is a, a true thing, but that we're so, um, there's so many barriers between us and grasping truth. Right. That it's, it's likely that nobody's figured it out. So I think of the, um, yeah the tv show the good place yes i yes. was just thinking of that <laughs> <laughs> and you know like right at the beginning they get to the afterlife and they're like yeah nobody really had it right except this one guy for some reason and we we don't really know why yeah. See, um, I, for, for two seconds he was high and then he figured it out what it was all really like uh, uh, yeah <laughs> and the, the criticism of the good place having it because it it, it like you, it, it has a lot of postmodern, it, it talks about a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. But a criticism I heard, I actually didn't finish it. And I didn't finish it because I got bored with the lack of, um, how, how do I put it? Maybe this is uh, indicative of, of my generation or, or who I am, but the lack of direction or answers. Mm -hmm. And um, I felt like it kind of ate its own tail in that way, that it was so scared of actually setting up a, this is true, or this is what is actually going on, that it actually, it kind of ignored classic story structure and eventually just kind of said, eh, we, we don't really know. And I, I don't really know. That's just what I've heard other people. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that, I, I don't think that's totally wrong. I do think um, The Good Place actually improves greatly if you realize it's basically a show about how hard it is to make a network sitcom. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Well, and, I'm, I'm interested, and Joseph and I, I, I talked about how we, we really want to get your take on this. You are a film reviewer and yes. someone who is deeply versed in uh, talking about post-modernism uh, and, and all of that. What are some of the, the shows, the books, the music even, um, that best reflect uh, postmodernism, especially today in the past maybe 10, 15 years, what are some of those things that we can really see this idea and this perspective yeah. reflected uh, in our pop culture and our, especially in our arts, because we have a lot of listeners who are artists and love art in one form or the other. What are some of those art pieces of our mm -hmm. generation and our culture that best represent what you were talking about when it comes to postmodernism? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's interesting because different works of art embody ideas and one big thrust, I think, among um, postmodern artists kind of growing out of the abstract and conceptual era is that um, 
it's less about what it says and more about what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'm, if you go to a museum, if you go to the new museum and look at the art there, which, you know, that's pretty much the most, most postmodern um, that you'll see. Yeah. What's most notable is that there's really no, um, no like schools of aesthetics, if that makes sense. So in the past, like if you go to the MoMA, you can walk into rooms where you can see a bunch of people kind of playing with the same techniques. Yeah. And that's that's pretty much not a part of postmodern art. It's it's playful, it's it's chaotic on purpose, and it's really intended not to be like a final product in and of itself, but it's intended to be something that you can go invest yourself in or maybe it's process art um which i think is really interesting it's it's so you know but like that's not totally my area in pop culture though um i would say so i think um arrested development was one of the most postmodern tv shows (laughs) big fan yeah (laughs) yeah and one reason is that a a major mode frederick jameson said that a major mode maybe the major mode of like humor he hated this but the major Mm. mode of humor in our time he said is referential so the idea of references and hyperlinks um yeah inside jokes essentially among the entire generation mm -hmm. right yeah and arrested development you know is so so tightly it's 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 fantastic, but it's so referential that if you start watching in the third season, not only will you not know who these people are, but you won't understand why any of this is funny because it's all callbacks. Um, You know, another show that did this, uh, that was, I would think of as highly postmodern is Community. Which I believe is starting to make right a comeback. And actually, uh, I always say this when anyone says community. Oh, God, here he goes again. My very first role in Los Angeles was a one-line role on community, which I'm very proud to have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a postmodernist now. <laughs> no, no, but you, you, you may not be a postmodernist, but you are part of the postmodernist. That's right. Yes. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, so, you know, community, um, among other things, is basically a deconstruction of genres, like every episode. Mm deconstructs a different genre of of filmmaking and kind of pokes fun at it it's not it's not satirical it's just kind of parodical and those are two different things there's you know there's lots of writings in um among postmodern theorists about that um and then i think you know like i just watched devs um which Mm -hmm. i did not think was great but (laughs) um, (laughs) but it was engaging and you know that's that is a show about kind of like the nature of reality and it's not like people have never questioned the nature of reality it's just when you get to the end of it a friend of mine was actually finishing it last night and he tweeted something like I don't know if you've seen it but he said "I, I I'm we're watching the finale of devs and I'm kind of half expecting to see myself suddenly watching this show (laughs) I saw two episodes Sure. Yeah. I should tell you everything. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's, it's, you know, that kind of thing really holds. But, it, you know, in film, I think the most postmodernist filmmaker is Quentin Tarantino. I think most everyone agrees with this ah. for very, all kinds of reasons. Sure. Um, and a big one is that he sees history, and this is not a slight on him, this is just a statement. He sees history as kind of a, a like a sandbox for him to play in. Sure. Um, yeah. And with, with, um, he's highly referential again. I mean, yeah. Pulp Fiction um, plays with the structure of narrative itself. Uh, you know, it was that was a mind blowing film when it came out in the 90s because it yeah. told the story like inside out and backwards. And 
that um that kind of launched him as so there's there's other postmodernist filmmakers sure. for sure but he definitely is sort of the king of the postmodernists when it comes okay. to film and i've just named a whole bunch of things that i think are fantastic so sure, yeah um yeah i think sometimes people call things postmodern when they're confused by them but oh, sometimes right artists intend to confuse you because they want to provoke this reaction in you. Sure. Um, <laughs> and that's the question, right? Yeah. So, uh, so a, a couple, maybe a couple more questions. Mm -hmm. One thing as I will say is, so I've, I've just finished reading a book called Hypermodern Times, mm -hmm. which uh, by the philosopher Gillis Lipovetsky, I believe I'm saying his name correctly. Um, and his sort of contention is that we're sort of had exited the postmodern era and are sort of in the hypermodern era. Right. And the, you know, like modernism in if to like to very briefly summarize the way he puts it is modernism was everybody is reforming or inventing institutions to make men mankind more free and prosperous. Then there those institutions are so effective that uh, that when those institutions start to lose credibility because of, you know, scandals like, you know, World War One, Civil War, you know, different different things like that, that people are have the capability and kind of interest to say, well, no, maybe we won't, you know, we we're not going to trust those institutions anymore. We're going to kind of, you know, be only only uh, believe in or act on things that we're persuaded about, not that we're being forced to do or have to do out of a sense of duty. So you get mm -hmm. a kind of an era that's like, let's do what makes us happy or do what's you know we're persuaded to do. Um, and then, which is why sort of media and arts and fashion become sort of dominant in that era. But then once you get to sort of the hyper modern era, it's this realization that, oh, if I can, if I'm free to pursue my own happiness truly, then I'm also responsible for my own happiness. Mm, sort of to the, to the, in the words of uh, Bojack Horseman. Oh, um, another good one. Yes. Uh, postmodern show. Yeah. But it's like, you know, in, but in a sense, like, you know, Gillis Lipovitsky would say it's a hyper modern show because it's like, you know, because his reaction to, wait, I'm responsible my, for my own happiness. I can't be responsible for my, for my own breakfast. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so that the sort of hyper, or another way to put it is that, you know, hypermodern, you know, the postmodernism is when in the graduate, when they run off and uh, get, you know, leave the uh, wedding altar to run off together. And, and then hypermodernism is where the two of them sit there and realize, oh, wait, we don't know exactly what we've done. Right. So do you think that that's a useful construction that we're sort of out of the postmodern era and sort of in a hypermodern era? Or do you think that that's, you know, sort of uh, making a distinction without a necessary difference? Well, I think it's a, a it's a helpful distinction as far as like thinking about things. Um, <laughs> I don't know that I would. So one thing that always strikes me when um, people come up with propositions about having been out of the postmodern era sure. um, is that uh, it's almost very postmodern of us to, to do this. Um, because if you think about it, can an era be like an era, like an epic of history be 80 years long? Probably not like that. You know, we have, we have many large portions of history, but they're, they're longer. Right. And yes, right, the world right. has sped up, but, um, I think, you know, what we're describing there is that there's kind of different ways of, inhabiting post-modernity and that they are all kind of mushed up together. Another term that sure. gets thrown away or around sometimes is meta-modernism. I've heard that one. Mm -hmm. okay. um, I also think there's a way in which we could argue 
and nobody's going to know if we're correct for about 500 years, sure, which yeah. is kind of the great part of this. But um, <laughs> there's a way in which you can argue, and I, I pretty much do believe this, that postmodernism is not post anything. It's really just the apex of modernism, that sure. the modernist project, the enlightenment project right. really was always headed to this point. Right. Um, and, and this is one reason that I really like Charles Taylor is that he's always pointing out that um, every era comes with what he calls boosters and knockers, which is just a ludicrous term. And I made yeah. my co-writer take it out of the book, but he's kind of <laughs> saying like, there's good things about different times and bad things about different times. Yeah. And you have to accept that nobody's going to be able to construct a perfect era. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so like, for instance, our, our time is much more, you know, perhaps even overly, um, focused on individual autonomy and right. the ability to construct the self and authenticity and all that. On the other hand, that might be preferable to times when people were whole groups of people were just put in, you know, categories that could be summarily dismissed. Right. I, I was, um, I was sort of startled to, I was doing some research and realized that we have not even, like in two weeks, we're going to hit the hundred year mark of women being able to vote in the US. Mm, um, and like, that's not that long ago. Oh, wow. The film industry is older than women's suffrage in the US. Like that's wild. So, yeah. um, so when you think about it that way, it's like, okay, well, we, ha we, we moved in one direction and then we make a trade-off. And right. it's just human nature that we're always going to take things to an extreme that is not going to be beneficial for everyone. Right. Um, so what but, would you say, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. What would you say are ways that we can maximize the good things about post-modernism or post-modernity mm -hmm. and... Um, and uh, and lessen some of its negative effects. Then I mean, because I, I remember you, I you, I I've listened to you speak and read, read stuff that you've said for a while, and so I remember you wrote one. Uh, uh, you wrote about Mad Max Fury Road for mm -hmm. the Washington Post a while back, talking about sort of you know that dystopias now basically have again that that postmodern distrust of institutions and. Um, and uh, but you also talked about how like maybe there's a way for the institutions to be better and so then more able to mediate the individual. Um, so, so I'd be interested just in hearing like what you think is the way that we should attempt to maximize uh, the good things about postmodernism and while mitigating the harm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of things. One is I do think we, um, it behooves us to learn to kind of dwell in the messy, like chaoticness of the culture that we produce, um, where, sure. you know, we do, we make things that don't give answers. Um, I think that's, you know, largely good. Um, it's not propagandistic. It, it gives us places for us to meet together hmm. um, and come together as people. That's what art does best anyhow. Um, so I think that's a big thing. I, you know, it's, it's interesting that I wrote that Mad Max piece, uh, I don't know, whenever that came out, 2014, 2015, something yeah, like that. I think, yeah, but and um, I think, you know, I, I had no idea at the time that I was going to, in 2020, be thinking about how much our institutions are challenged by their kind of like inability to do what institutions are supposed to do, which according to Andy Crouch's book, um, Playing God, which is really, really good, um, is that institutions are created in order to create and increase power like and distribute it to the people in the institution and i think mm -hmm. that we see real battles in our cultural institutions right now over whether 
all the power is going to accrue in one direction or whether it's going to be spread out more and, and give people more voice and more resources, all that stuff. So sure. um, there are cases in which I think um, institutions have kind of shown themselves to be what he calls zombie institutions, which are like basically institutions that exist only to perpetuate themselves. <laughs> and sure. They suck all the air out of the room. Um, so I think there's sort of like a two pronged thing here, which is that um, postmoderns know that they need community uh, and it's, mm -hmm. it's like very, very clear. So even though oh, yeah. we all want to be individuals, we're like hyper aware of the fact that we need community and we're hyper aware of the fact that we, we kind of build that community on the basis of common understandings. You know, you find the people that um, you disagree with, but you also find the people who have the same passion as you. And I think we would do really well to be able to n not politicize those passions um, and okay. sort of maximize that inclination of the postmodern who is a little bit adrift in the world otherwise. And then the other big piece is that postmodernism is all about th thinking critically about the narratives, um, cultural narratives that we're given. So that could be anything from we're the good guys, <laughs> which is, you know, a cultural narrative that we certainly absorb to, you know, just stories about how life should go or what right. it means to be successful or all those things. And postmodernity really gives us the ability to confront and dismantle those or to reorient them. And for Christians, in any case, that should, um, we should be reorienting them towards the good for as many as we can. And I think we're actually given that opportunity now in ways that we might not have been able to if we were more locked into, um, you know, hierarchies and um, the sort of the things you're born into is all you're allowed to sure. be. So we kind of end up with opportunity um, and opportunity to take place, to take a place at the table because there's places for everyone um, in a way that, you know, I, I, Honestly, having written for Christianity Today, you know, taught at Christian college, all those things, one of the things that people ask me absolutely the most is, well, isn't it hard to like, you know, worm your way into the secular world as a Christian? I'm like, no, not really. Yeah. Like, it's not, that's, you know, you shouldn't expect to go anywhere and not be challenged and confronted um, because everyone, you know, is a person with dignity and is allowed yeah. to have their own ideas. But, um, I think we, this sort of myth of like the the stonewalling or like the throwing out of um, people of faith is is overblown at minimum. Um, and so we, we do have that opportunity. Now, before we wrap up, I'm interested, I wanna talk just for a second about, because we've talked a lot about postmodernity today and how it affects this world. And a lot of what we talked about is essentially the postmodern, postmodernism is getting rid of some of those old institutions, those pillars. Um, and it, it, it may, for lack of a better word, I've seen this uh, described as deconstructionism in a lot of ways, sure. be that in art, be that in philosophy, be that in government, uh, or be that in religion. And I do think there is a huge benefit to doing this. I think there's a benefit to tearing down these old um, systems that we have found do not work. And when I say do not work, that I mean have hurt people, have uh, marginalized people, have um, caused harm in the world. But I, if there's one critique I would have of the modern age, of postmodernism in general, it would be that we are very good at tearing, I'd be two things, that we're very good at tearing down, but right now I don't feel often like we know what we're building up 
And number two, very often we become the thing that we seek to dismantle, meaning when we tear down these old institutions, um, very often what happens is we just build a new institutions of people talking about tearing down old institutions. Um, mm -hmm. And you mentioned art earlier about going to the MoMA versus maybe the Met uh, here in New York. I think we're all in New York. And it, it is interesting, you, you know, you walk through the Met, uh, especially the classical wing, and you see the very consistent aesthetic between many artists you see, whether it's uh, the Renaissance uh, or after um, or before, you see um, a lot of styles reflected. And you mentioned going to the MoMA and, and looking at the modern art, and you talked about how there isn't a consistent aesthetic, that it's all very um, maybe unbound. But one thing I would say, you know, even look at the postmodern artists, but be it Jackson Pollock or Rothko, who you mentioned, or Warhol, some of the most famous in that movement of postmodern art when they got rid of all the old um, uh, systems, they got rid of all the old uh, maybe pressures or, or boundaries, is they didn't aesthetically match up anymore. You know, Jackson Pollock uh, and, and Rothko had completely different styles, but I would say there is a consistency in philosophy, being that it was very... It, it was about them. It wasn't about the excellence of the art or the beauty of the form or um, the practice uh, of the, the style, the, uh, the, the knowledge of the education part of the art of how to do this. Uh, and it was more about expression from um, their own personal feelings. And so they gave meaning to it. And so I think it is interesting, one, to see postmodernism, how it actually um, ultimately becomes what it seeks to seeks to dismantle, becomes its own movement, it becomes its own, um, uh, I guess, uh, system that eventually will have to be torn down itself if it's, gonna, if it's gonna stay consistent. And two, is I do see that postmodernism ha has a consistent through line while saying maybe often that it does not. Um, and this is referenced in the art, and I do, and on top of that, this might be uh, just a side note, I would say that if you look at the difference when you walk into the Met and you look at the classical art, um, and you look at the difference when you walk into the MoMA, and this is this is personal and I am willing to, um, uh, to be disagreed with, um, but I would say there is a stark difference in the effect it has on the viewer. Now perhaps, um, perhaps that's not the, the uh, intention of modern art, but when I see um, you know, Van Gogh or uh, Renoir or uh, Rembrandt, whoever it is, I see, I, you feel instantly more beauty, more form, more reflectiveness of reality. When I see modern art, I see reflectiveness. Uh, very often I don't see anything. And you almost have to have the, the artist there with you to tell you what he was trying, what he was intending with his art, which seems to me to defeat the purpose of art in a lot of ways. We had an episode recently, we talked about the purpose of art, at least in large part, is to connect to the viewer in some large way. It is to connect to their experience, their history, their understanding of the world, and very often in modern art, uh, that's not as possible. No, so so I'll, I, will, well, I will, yes, I will, I'll, just, I'll just piggyback on that just for a little bit, just so that you can have the final word um, uh, and in pushing back on our pushback. I will, I will say that, you know, you may mention that the, you know, a lot of times it's great to have art that doesn't give answers. And I, I find on the other hand that a lot of times the art that's, I prefer art that tries to give answers because then I have something to wrestle with and something to maybe say, maybe do I agree with that or disagree with that? Um, oftentimes you have art that's not trying to give answers or doesn't want to have form or is, it often becomes an ink block test 
for whatever the viewer mm. wants to impose upon it. And to a certain degree, postmodernism is saying, well, that's what we're all doing all the time. But there is a difference between a kind of art that has enough there in it that you can wrestle with it um, without uh, wrestle with it rather than just being an inkblot test that you can project your own stuff on. So if you can find a way to um, uh, push back or, or oh, yeah. well, on so any of that or that we were all talking <laughs> about, the last you get the word. last word. Yes. Well, I, I want to work my way back from the inkblot test because yeah. I do hear this as an example sometimes. But I think what we have to remember is people don't do inkblot tests just like for the heck of it. They're mm. actually supposed to reveal something about the person who's looking at the ink blots, right? Mm. That's the, it's a tool for revealing something about the viewer. And so I think the best way to think about, I think the best way to think about art throughout history, um, unless we're talking about art for hire, which is a whole different animal, but yeah. um, I think the best way to think about what we would, might, might consider to be fine art, which often means painting, is that it is an ink blot test in the sense that it's supposed to make us be self-reflective um, and it's something that is supposed to read us back to ourselves and that we actually have to approach it with that attitude um, and that kind of openness um, and the openness to be freaked out by it or concerned by it or be left wondering oh what what does this actually mean right and then go talk about it with people and I you know one thing that I I would note is that Jackson Pollock is not a postmodern painter um, none no of those way. guys they're all modernists, right? Um, they do belong to schools of thought. We have abstract expressionists. We have, you know, sort of action painting. We have all these kinds of different schools. Um, and what's most interesting, I actually, I wrote my um, MA thesis on sort of this topic and Francis Schaeffer, and I talked about Jackson Pollock mm. quite a bit in there. Um, because... Uh-oh, I stepped into this time. <laughs> <laughs> you know about him, that's not good. <laughs> You know, one thing that I love about Jackson Pollock is that I, I find his work quite beautiful um, and moving mm. in a way that I just, you know, like a lot of Van Gogh's pictures of people who I don't know and I have to like convince myself I want to be interested in this. Mm. Um, whereas, you know, part of the idea of a, of a work of abstraction, which again, not postmodernist um, yet, is that um, it's leaving a lot of space for me it's actually coaxing me and forcing me to be involved in the art making process. So this is not in my postmodernism class, but one thing I do talk about quite a bit is that a work of art really is something that requires the investment of the audience in it and it changes depending on who's looking at it. So in, in some sense, I think, you know, we don't see the same movie. We see slightly different movies because mm -hmm. the filmmaker made a movie, they put it on the screen um, and then we all watch it and we all come away slightly differently from it. Um, and that's because we're bringing our full selves to it, whoever we are, you know, all kinds of things from how much art education do you have to, you know, um, like your gender that can, that can have effects, right? Or like, what's your background? Um, and a great work of art, in my opinion, should leave a, a lot of people with a lot of places they can go with it. Um, and that's not to say that portraiture isn't great works of art or anything like that, yeah, obviously. Yeah. But um, but one thing I love about the modernists, and honestly, I really prefer modernist art to postmodernist art, is that um, they do this in, with a kind of rigor uh, where they're exploring the history of art itself as they're making art. Um, the postmodernists are a whole different ball of wax because a lot of what they're doing is purposely 
um, as you said, like trying to express the self. Um, but I think they're expressing mm. the self by evoking for us what it is to be inside their heads, which is a little bit of what Pollock was doing as well, but um, kind of expressing the notion of um, here's what it means to be me. And why don't you come sit down next to me for a minute? And it might be frightening or confusing. Some of it's bad. That just calling something <laughs> art doesn't mean it's good. But um, sure. uh, some of it's bad. But I, I, you know, I find this to be really helpful and interesting, and also to make you know the difference between the Met, although the Met's modern collection is quite good, but the Met and the MoMA, which doesn't really have a lot of postmodern art in it most of the time and the new museum which is fully postmodern art or like you might see a lot of postmodern art at the brooklyn museum as well um mm -hmm. is that they sometimes postmodern art actually becomes more didactic it's actually closer to what you're saying so there's a famous work of art in the um brooklyn museum in the permanent collection called the dinner table and it's a it's by a artist named judy chicago it's this sort of this triangular table um, and there are plates set and there are little name tags and it's all these women um, who were left out of or have been largely kind of sidelined out of history. Um, that is not being coy about its aims, right? <laughs> it's saying like they belong at the table too. Um, and so in a way there's, you, you actually have less to walk away from um, it with. Um, but, but it had a purpose, it had a meaning, it had something it was sure. confronting at the time. And it's there as much as a work of history as anything else. But, you know, it's not something that you could live with or put in your house or anything like that. It's this enormous room. Um, and personally, I, I love like weird room filled, changing art. Like I, you know, I have I have flown to other countries to see exhibitions because I think mm. that stuff is really fascinating and great. And one thing I love about the new MoMA, honestly, is that they've made more space for that. They actually have a whole room in there just for soundscapes, which is going to be wow. so cool. Um, but I also think there's a large part of this is just aesthetic preference. And like, sure. you don't have sure. to like it. Um, nobody, in fact, <laughs> I think most post postmodernists are a little annoyed if people like their work too much. <laughs> but I do think it's, you know, it's useful to sort of see that progression as thinking about art, thinking about what it means to look at art, like just kind of interrogating yeah. art itself and even interrogating like the validity of the idea that me as an artist making this work and putting it in a museum is somehow controlling what it means. And mm -hmm. some of them are like, I don't want that. Um, and that's very postmodern as well. Yeah. Well, we we covered a lot of ground today, <laughs> and you know, uh, love. If I don't know if you if anybody's come away, you know, loving postmodernism more or hating it more uh, from <laughs> listening to this, but we hope that people understand it a little bit better, or maybe understand it less, because that would be very postmodern. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't escape it, so yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, but we have learned we are all postmodern. Exactly, yes. we have learned that. So, and we learned that Rothko, Pollock, and uh, Warhol are modernists, not yes. postmodernists. So, Thank goodness, I know this. Yeah, exactly. And uh, definitely, I, I, I look, I look forward to continuing to um, have the the debate about the um, ink blot test nature yeah. of, <laughs> of of art because I, I do have like still have feelings about that. But this is a good conversation to continue to have. So let's um, thank you very much for coming on to our podcast. That was and, great, I, Alyssa. Thank you so this much. Is what, of course, we still have our blesses and curses segment oh, yes. of the week, which you know <laughs> I told uh, 
uh, Professor Wilkinson about ahead of time. Um, so as everyone knows, we have, you know, it, we pick uh, something, uh, some piece of art we want to bless and some piece of art we want to curse. Um, these opinions are, are ours alone. They're not bound on earth or bound in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so we always give our guests the, the first shot. So Professor Wilkinson, what would be a piece of art uh, that you might like to bless this week or curse this week? Or both. Or both. Yes, you can both do both at the same time. Please. Which uh. would be very postmodern. <laughs> um, yeah, I actually thought about this quite a bit after you you said that. Um, and I, um, I, I'm actually going to go, well, does criticism, yeah, criticism counts as art. What am I saying? Of course it does. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, yeah, I, um, I will say I have been, um, fascinated reading this book by by Jim Hoverman, um, which is called The Dream Life, um, mm. and it one the thing that fascinates me is not just how he weaves cultural history and political history and sort of all that stuff together, but also that he manages to like pull it off. Um, history mm. is not easy to make interesting or to tell as kind of a lyrical story and a lot of people who try to do it do it very very badly <laughs> so i i love that very much and um it's sort of a it's a history lesson um and a writing lesson all in one so the dream life widely available nice mm -hmm. and do you have any curses or are you gonna oh goodness um <laughs> I, I watch so many movies. I watch nine hours of stuff on um on Monday, which is like my typical Monday um in order to Dang. write my coverage for the week. But I will say there's a uh, <laughs> there's a there's a documentary series that came out on Netflix today called Fear City, New York versus the Mafia, which sounded like it's gonna heard be of this. awesome. It's really not awesome <laughs> at all. Oh, no. You saved uh, me from a, a few hours of frustration. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you should just skip it and watch any Martin Scorsese movie, but particularly the Irishman <laughs> and you'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, uh, well actually like, as a, we don't usually do this, but if you're saying any Martin Scorsese film, would you give one recommendation, actually, for a Martin Scorsese film to well, pick, pick one? Uh, one? Well, just like, if instead of this okay. documentary. Instead of this documentary, just watch The Irishman, even though it's not set in New York and it's not set, well, I guess it is set, set in that era, um, because it's so much more kind of loaded um, with meaning and like eternity yeah. and all kinds of things. Although if you really specifically want to think about New York versus the mafia in the seventies, then Mean Streets is the obvious choice. Mm, yeah, good one. Very cool, very cool. Okay, so Nathan. Okay, so my my blesses and curses of the week. I try to stay somewhat on topic um, about for my, for my bless uh, and maybe a little bit of my curse. So my bless is an album um, that I was referred to by, uh, is a musical album and a band I've been listening to pretty much nonstop since I've been back in New York. Mm -hmm. um, and it has become my soundtrack to the streets and at least it was when I was walking around. Um, but it's by a band called the 1975. And the writer, the, the lead singer and writer of most of the songs um, of this band, he just has such a great insight into this generation, the fears, the hopes, uh, the the general aesthetic of our emotions, if that's even a, hmm. a word I can use, that he translates into music and his poetry. Um, but the best album that really gets to um, what I would say that is very postmodern uh, and kind of the reaction and emotions from it would be, it's called A Brief Inquiry into Online Relationships. Hmm. It's an amazing, hmm. deep, 
uh, uh, nuanced album that's very personal and raw, but definitely has uh, cultural understanding and critique. So I just absolutely love this. I encourage anyone to go and listen to the whole thing as one singular art piece, not listen to one song. Um, and then my dislikes of the week, it's funny that we mentioned them because I'd already thought of them, but now I know they're modernists. <laughs> I, and the reason I'm picking music and uh, visual art is because I'm trying as an actor to make sure I don't burn too many bridges with my, <laughs> with my blesses and curses. Um, but my curses, I don't think I'm gonna burn too many bridges because I don't plan on becoming a modern artist anytime soon, um, <laughs> is I, I'm gonna curse uh, and I do this respectfully to our, to our guest. Uh, and who I'm very glad informed me that these are modern artists, not postmodern artists. Um, <laughs> but it would be, I'm gonna curse all of them at once, it'd be Jackson Pollock, uh, Rothko, is it George Rothko? Um, and, <laughs> Mark. And, uh, and Andy Warhol. I do not think, and I, and I curse them because I do not think they were artists. And that's a whole nother, um, that's a whole nother episode. Um, I think they were fantastic salesmen. I think they're very, very talented salesmen, um, but their art for me leaves something to be desired. Uh, and I'd say it leaves, it, it leaves me desiring anything. Um, and that could just be very personal, but I do have thoughts philosophically behind why I think this. Um, uh, but uh, that is just my opinion. So please go view these artists and read about them and what they do and come up with your own conclusions and thoughts. Uh, and maybe you'll be on the side of our guest uh, who sounds like she has done way more research than me. <laughs> but those are, those are the artists I choose. That's the, the, the work of these artists. That is my curse this week. My bless again, one more time, is in 1975, a brief inquiry into on, online relationships. Cool. So my bless and curse of the week, my bless is a new graphic novel that a friend of mine just shared with me recently. It's called uh, Superman Smashes the Clan. Okay, <laughs> and it's it's really interesting. It was really fascinating because it is you know a modern book that's sort of set in the um, just like the post World War II era. That's you know loosely inspired by the fact that in the in the actual like you know 1940s when Superman had his own radio show, somebody actually went undercover into the Ku Klux Klan so that he could find out what they do and then write for the Superman radio show exposing them what they were really like and show Superman actually fighting the Klan. So they're doing a modern updated version of that. And the person who wrote it and drew it were both, you know, it's where, um, is an Asian American immigrants who were able to use the story in order to sort of share their own experiences of immigration and their own sort of struggle for identity um, in America and, and dealing with racism and stuff like that. And it was really very, I was very impressed with their ability to tell it, you know, it's a, a comic book superhero story about Superman, a character I love very much. And, use the fact that Superman's uh, status is sort of like, you know, the, the ultimate sort of sci-fi fantasy immigrant tale to be able mm. to tell a story that's, that is talking about those themes, particularly nowadays when, you know, again, the search for identity is something that is very much part of being in postmodern, but also in our modern conversations about immigration and stuff like that, and being able to give voice to marginalized communities that maybe have not had the voice to use Superman in that way and to, to tell a Superman story in that way that's faithful to him and also expands the people who can relate to him in that way and the ways he can be relevant, I was really impressed with, with being able to do that balance. Um, also, my curse of the week, I'm going to pick a movie that just came out that's got a lot of good reviews, but I did not like, um, Palm Springs. Oh, uh, no! Yeah. <laughs> I thought that might, I thought you might not like that. And I'll, I'll, I'm, I think I gave it three and a half out of five, so. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I will, I will, I will explain why, though. I, I, it's a great concept, an amazing concept, 
but they kept doing things throughout it that that created additional barriers to being able to get in the story for me, whether or not it was um, creating, uh, you know, following characters who knew more than we did versus the characters who knew as much as we did versus having characters do things that I thought were not justified by what was going on. And partly was because of the way they would keep, you know, information from us versus giving us information. I, I, I know that they were trying to be clever, but I thought the cleverness got in its way rather than, um, rather mm-hmm. have gotten the way um, in my way certainly rather than mm-hmm. uh, helping uh, helping the story enhancing the story and also because and this is a, a more a more personal reason the the arc for the male character reinforced the problematic narrative that you can either be a, a sort of a put together um, and self and sort of self sufficient guy who is detached from relationships or you can be a guy who is open up relationships, but is rather codependent and weak. Mm. And they basically create, have the male character go through the arc where he's, you know, learns to form himself to the attachments, but then he becomes somebody who is, in his own words, codependent and not, you know, and, and not, and s- small, much smaller seeming. And I think that in an era we're trying to figure out, are there ways for us to, you know, encourage men to, be able to be open to their feelings and attachments, re, 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 um, was it? Re, um, reinforcing the stereotype that you have to choose between those two is not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I have to see it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, I think my headline was something like two dirtbags find each other, which <laughs> I don't think they stop being dirtbags. Yes. Which is also fair. Yes. Um, so, which is also, but that's a whole thing. Like romantic comedies have always been about horrible people finding love and therefore, mm-hmm keeping the, it's their own themselves to themselves so they don't have to bother us. That's and we right. will be doing a whole episode on romantic comedies sometime in the future, everybody. Yes. So listen but, out. But anyway, thank you so much again, uh, Professor Wilkinson, for coming on the podcast. Would you like to plug anything in particular for us? It's, you have the floor. And where can, oh. people, find and where can people find you and connect with you? Yes. Yeah, um, so you can find me. All my writing is published at Vox um, because they... They pay me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, you know, I tweet a lot. That's uh, Alyssa Marie. And then I, um, I have recently begun a podcast with a friend of mine, which we have somewhat um, cheekily named Young Adult movie ministry um, I, I love the title by the way that's fantastic yeah it was not me it's all sam he's much funnier <laughs> than i am but um our we're you know right now it, it, if you listen it's it's sort of like we called each other and laughed about something for 90 minutes but um, that's why people listen to podcasts <laughs> <laughs> exactly but um yeah so far we've covered uh the the um orson wells narrated film version of Hal Lindsey's classic bestseller um uh uh oh gosh what even is the name of it oh wow I'm like the one about you can the find out if you listen to the podcast the late great yeah. planet earth and last week we talked about Narnia a bit and then we've just actually recorded one this morning and I'll tell you it is on the life of Brian the Monty Python movie. oh love that so, movie love yes. that movie so we just basically talk about things for a while but um but hopefully it's fun and That's that awesome. is at Fantastic. youngadultmovieministry.com Fantastic. And okay, and of course, as always, where can people find you, Nathan? Uh, you can find me on all the socials to search my name, Nathan Clarkson. You can go to my website, nathanclarkson.me. Uh, feel free to grab one of my books off of Amazon. Just search my name. Uh, that should be enough for you to my books. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I yes. wrote it. Exactly. Um, yes. uh, I have a new one out called Good Man. I'd love for y'all to pick up a copy. 
um, as well as you can get a hold of us and the Overthinkers. You can visit our website at theoverthinkerjournal.com. You can uh, connect to us uh, through there. Let us know what you thought about the episode. Let us know about, thought about the topics, what we said, what we should have said. Um, <laughs> and please uh, leave a review. Uh, that really helps us a lot. And again, I just want to thank you all so much. We've built up this incredible audience. Yeah. Really faithful people who keep on listening and writing in. So I just For some so reason. Much. Yeah. <laughs> but obviously the, the weird stuff that we're interested in. Yeah. And, and our guests are uh, connects to you out there. So thank you so much for listening. Yes. And you can find me on all the socials as well at Twitter, normalguy8, Instagram, uh, Holmes.5905. And you can go to my website, josephholmesstudios.com. Thank you very much, everyone. And remember, if it's worth thinking about, it's worth overthinking about. Mm-hmm.